0: really important to consider what the child's specific sensory needs are because kids can have really major sensory differences and being exposed to sensory input that is dysregulating for them can cause lots of issues so we want to make sure that we feel really good about the kind of sensory input we are giving to our kids.
1: SLPs, I'm Michelle, and this is the Pep Talk podcast for continuing education. This podcast provides furthering knowledge on topics related to speech language pathology. I interview experts in our field to bring you the most up-to-date information so you can go out into your workplace and feel more confident and learn new skills. You can use this episode for a professional development hour to maintain your ASHA CCCs. This course is also certified by the Texas Speech and Hearing Association, also known as Tisha. You must complete the course quiz with a passing score to earn your certificate of completion. You can find more information, other courses, and helpful tools on my website, Pep Podcast for SLPs.com. Connect with me on Instagram, Facebook, or email me at michelle at Pep for SLPs.com. I love hearing from you guys. Please don't hesitate to reach out. Just a quick disclaimer, the contents of this episode are not meant to replace clinical advice. Pep Talk podcast, its host and guests do not represent or endorse specific products or procedures mentioned during the episodes unless otherwise stated. Each episode topic has been carefully chosen to fill an educational need. If you have an additional perspective or any information to contribute, or if you need special accommodations to participate in this course, please reach out at info at peptalkpodcast for slps.com. This entire episode is transcribed if you would like to or need to read this episode in text. Hey there, I'm Michelle Andrews and I'm your host for the Pep Talk podcast. This episode is all about understanding sensory processing and finding ways to regulate to find your students optimal learning zone. I can't wait to learn from my guest speaker today, Jesse Ginsberg. Hi there, Jesse. Hello. Hey there. Let me give a quick bio of you real quick. Jessie is a mom of about to be four any day or week now, pretty soon. She is the founder of Pediatric Therapy Playhouse in Los Angeles She has contributed to many publications, including the ASHA Leader Magazine, presented at conferences, has been on many other podcasts. Jessie has completed a lot of sensory integration programs and has even created her own. So be sure to check out the Inside Out sensory programs that she has created. First, we need to go over some formalities for the course by going over our financial disclosures. My financial disclosures include, I have a Teachers Pay Teachers, Boom Learning, and Teach with Medley store under Pep Talk LLC. I am also the founder and manager of the Pep Talk podcast for SLPs. My non-financial disclosures include, Speech Arcade is an in-kind sponsor for this podcast. Jessie's financial disclosures include, she is the owner of Pediatric Therapy Playhouse and the creator of the Inside Out Sensory Programs. Jesse's non-financial disclosures include no non-financial disclosures. Now, here are the learner objectives for this course. Number one, explain why regulation is essential to building communication. Number two, describe key characteristics of the regulated child. Number three, describe three sensory activities that can be implemented in sessions in order to improve regulation. Okay, let's get started. So today we're talking all about sensory strategies for SLPs to know. Hi there again, Jesse. I am so happy to have you on the show. Can you tell me a little bit more about yourself and what made you want to specialize in sensory processing?
0: Yeah, I'm so excited to be here. And I will say, Michelle, like you are onto something here as I'm listening to you talk about the course. I'm like, this is the future of education for SLPs. I feel like this is... Such a great opportunity to learn from wherever you are.
1: Yes, exactly. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah. Um, So, oh, man, where do I begin? Um, You know, I I started out as an SLP assistant, and I was working in a clinic in Los Angeles, and that's where I first was introduced to sensory-type therapies, and I'm in – Los Angeles, which is where University of Southern California is, which is where I did my sensory integration training. And that's a really, um, like, a world-renowned school for their sensory integration training. So the woman behind tons of sensory research, Jean Ayers, her work originated at that school. So I worked with all of these OTs who had gone to that program, and done, I was doing a lot of co-treats in that clinic. And that's really where I started learning about it. And funny enough, I didn't even remember this until recently, but when I applied to grad school, my personal essay was a story of a boy and how sensory strategies completely changed my therapy with him and how once we started using the gym and the swing and getting him moving, that his communication just developed like fire and I wrote this story and that was my personal essay for grad school. And then I feel like sensory went away. I didn't think about it a lot and then kind of like started coming back after after school. But it's funny because I guess that thought has always kind of been implanted in my mind since the beginning.
1: Right. I know. I was just thinking how how needed it is and how that information for SLPs to know sensory strategies is so important. But I'm thinking back to grad school, and besides just saying, yes, kids have sensory needs, there wasn't a class just on that. There could have been several classes on that, really. Um, So really, I know I I would ask my OT. I, I worked at a private clinic that had OTs, PTs, and speech, and I was always asking my OTs, okay, what should I do? Okay, what can help this child that's doing this? And they were so helpful. They seemed to have all the knowledge, and it really just kind of like you said, the SLPs just kind of didn't get that information in grad school. And we're kind of needing to learn it now and learn it kind of like just in the professions.
0: I know. And I think there was like a point where I was like blaming school, like, why didn't I learn this? This is so important. And then you think about the scope of what we do as SLPs. And you're like, well, of course, we didn't learn about this in school. Look at like there are a lot of things that we didn't learn about. So, it's one of those things where we can fortunately, you know, go above and beyond after school and and get trained in it. And you know, most OT programs don't teach much about sensory either. If if you're lucky, you get one or two classes in sensory. Um, some OT programs have zero. So, it's really the same. You know, they have to go back really? and wow. get this training as well. But um You bring up another good point, which is, like, how fortunate you are when you get to work with sensory-trained OTs and get to go to them for strategies. And that was one of the reasons for me going and diving deeper into the training was that it was, like, when we would meet a kid who was dysregulated, it was, like, what was our one option? Refer to OT okay, great. Mm -hmm. But how is that going to help me today? And every day it's like, it's like as if our one option of refer to OT was going to magically make them regulated all the 23 and a half hours of the day. Other than that, you know, and it's like our sensory systems just, they don't work like that. And I think that that's a big misconception is that like, If a kid is getting a sensory-based therapy, it it means that they're always going to be regulated. It really is a lifestyle. It is a complete change in lifestyle to really understand kids' sensory needs and be able to give them what they need and avoid the things that trigger them, you know, on a weekly basis.
1: Absolutely. It seems moment to moment. Every situation is different. Every location may be different. Um, Yeah, it's definitely not just one hour a week at OT, just cover it with a Band-Aid. Absolutely. (laughs) Uh, So we've really established it really is a need for SLPs to understand sensory processing. But let's go over some of those reasons. Why do SLPs need to know about sensory?
0: Yeah, I think the biggest reason is that we truly can't do our job in the most effective way possible without being able to get our kids regulated. And That's neurology. That's how our brains are wired. You know, um, I wrote an an article for ASHA several years back about, like, this idea I called the language staircase, which was just an analogy I came up with one day. And I started drawing it with a Sharpie on a piece of paper in my sessions, explaining it to parents. And then years later, I decided to write about it for ASHA. Um, And I had no idea that they would (laughs) endorse it or – you know, like, say, yes, this would make a great article. Um, But it was something that really resonated with people, because it was this idea of, I would draw a staircase and say, you know, imagine a child's language development as a staircase, and you have the bottom steps are regulation and engagement. And the middle steps are more basic language. And then the top steps are higher level language and cognitive skills. And it was like, we would see kids coming into our clinic who maybe had some basic language like they would use words randomly here and there but nothing it really wasn't that something that was really consistent maybe even we had kids coming in who had gotten to like that i want phrase level but were like really stuck in that level but it's like these kids were like missing the lower level steps and the thing is that without stabilizing that those lower level steps without building those lower level steps we would never have a stable staircase where the child can get to the top and it's kind of like thinking about what is the short-term goal versus what is the long-term goal because if our goal is to get a kid to say I want train we can probably do it I'm not going to say like you could do it with every kid but it's like we could get a kid, we could sit them at a table, we could make it structured, we can have them request over and over again, even if they're dysregulated, and eventually we're probably going to get them to say, I want train. But it's like, is our goal, I want train, or is our goal for them to say, I want chocolate milk today, but you only have regular milk, so can we go to the store? You know, mm-hmm. it's like we we have to think so far beyond just that immediate it's almost like the instant gratification of getting a word versus like the long-term building the relationship, helping a child engage is what's really going to help them learn and build language.
1: Right. I love the analogy of the staircase, just having that firm foundation even before you, yeah, you can get to the higher up steps, having regulation in place in order to learn.
0: Yeah. And like I said, it's how our brain works because Our brain has, you know, we say, and this is, like, there's a really easy analogy in the book, The Whole Brain Child, where they talk about the downstairs brain and the upstairs brain, and it's the downstairs brain is basically responsible for, like, automatic reflexive responses, and that's where our regulation happens. And then you have the upstairs brain, where all of the cognitive processes happen, and language, and executive functioning, and all of these higher-level skills, But when we're dysregulated in that book, they say it's like there's a baby gate that just slams and you can't get from the downstairs to the upstairs part of the brain. So when we have our kids in our sessions, it's like they're here, they're trapped in the downstairs part of their brain where they're basically in survival mode and they're not even capable of accessing the language that they have. So it just feels like that's the kind of session you walk away from where you're like, either scratching your head going, why isn't this working? Or you're like feeling horrible about yourself as a therapist, or you feel like you're totally wasting their time because they're so dysregulated that you haven't even
1: been able to work on their language. Yeah, absolutely. That's very common. And that's why this information that you're sharing is so crucial. I'm, I just feel like you're doing so much for our field by being such an advocate for sensory because really, no matter what little niche you're in, like, AAC, even feeding, um, articulation—every SLP really should know. Uh, you know some of this information. This is so important. Okay, so let's talk about those key characteristics of a regulated child.
0: Yeah. So when I think about kind of like what does the optimal learning zone look like, I really am thinking about is the child attentive, and that's a tricky one in itself because, and it specifically if you're working with autistic kids because. We all know what, you know, joint attention looks like, but we also know that autistic joint attention does not look like neurotypical joint attention. Like, um, in neurotypical joint attention, we would expect a lot of eye contact, whereas with autistic joint attention, we may not see as much eye contact, um, and they may be attending in other ways. So I say that even though it's definitely something tricky, something to... Watch in your clients over time and try to get more comfortable and understanding. But I would say attentive, alert. So when I talk about alert, I mean like not that drowsy level, low energy, but they are more alert to the situation. Are they engaged and are they communicating? You know, because when kids are regulated, that's when you're going to see the most
1: engagement
0: and communication.
1: Okay. That's great to look for those. Attentive, alert to the situation, engaged, and communicating. So let's let's dive into regulation and how that's developing engagement and communication.
0: Yeah. So, um, I mean, I kind of like to think of regulation as, like, the foundation for engagement and communication. And have you heard of the 80? No, what is it? Um, is it the, the one thing, the book? It's like a business book. Have you ever heard of that?
1: The one, No, I haven't heard of it.
0: Great book, totally <laughs> irrelevant. But I think about that book because in that book, they say when you're running a business, you're supposed to write down all the things that you're trying to do. And then you're supposed to look at that list and figure out what is the one thing I need to do to make everything else on this list either easier or unnecessary.
1: Interesting. Okay. So it's like
0: yeah, so you basically think of like this whole list and but then you're like, but what is the one thing? Like what is the one thing I really need to focus on in order to move the needle forward? And for me it was like so glaringly obvious when I look at the needs of the kids. It's like, well, they're dysregulated. I'm having trouble getting them engaged. I'm having trouble getting them motivated. I'm having trouble getting them to use language. And what is the one thing I can do now that's going to make the biggest difference? And that is getting them regulated. Because if they're regulated, then the engagement and the communication, it's like you don't have to work as hard. It's almost like it comes naturally. Because when kids are regulated and engaged and motivated, that's when learning happens. Like, you don't have to stress yourself
1: out about trying. <laughs> exactly. That's a really great way to put it. That, yeah, having that regulation is going to help everything else fall into into place at least easier. Exactly. Okay, so we have mentioned the phrase optimal learning zone. Can you tell me exactly what that means? And. How to achieve it? I know that's a very short question with a very, very long answer, <laughs> but let's just dive right in. So how how do we achieve that optimal learning zone?
0: Yeah, no, it's quick analogy to explain it, not too long of an answer, but I like to say, you know, picture a child's sensory regulation as a seesaw, and when they're balanced, that represents a regulated child. And I call that their optimal learning zone because that's where they have to be in order to communicate and learn in the most effective, most efficient way possible. And then you picture a tipped seesaw and that represents a dysregulated child. So this dysregulated child is the seesaw's tipped. They are not balanced. They're not in their optimal learning zone. And what we see so often is that kids will come into our sessions and it's like we can it's like we can almost see their seesaw tipping. Like we're seeing signs that they're getting triggered by something or they're getting dysregulated. And we can see that they're like tipping, tipping. And what do we do? We keep going with the activity, we keep putting the demands on them, we keep targeting those, you know, language goals, and then all that does is further dysregulate the child. So The idea is that if we know our goal is that balanced seesaw, our goal is to bring them into the optimal learning zone, that when we start to see a seesaw starting to tip, that is our sign to, you know, hold back from placing demands to really help the child get regulated to bring them back to center because that's where they have to be in order for us to really use that time efficiently.
1: Right. Right. I, another great analogy. <laughs> you have all the analogies for us today. Very good. Um, okay. So when you start to see the seesaw tip, so that's the child's getting dysregulated, what does that look like? Can you give some examples of what to look for? What are some things that a child might do that would signal to you, stop, Let's let's get regulated here?
0: Yeah. I think that's another really important thing to think about because I think there's such a misconception that, like, a dysregulated child only looks one way, you know? Like, I think some people picture a dysregulated child as, like, the type of kid who's just running all around, won't sit still. Or you might picture a dysregulated child as a child, like, melting down on the floor. Like, we kind of have these versions of what does dysregulation look like in our heads, but it can look so differently for different kids, you know? I mean, first of all, we they could be in different survival modes. So they could be in, you've probably heard, like, fight, flight, freeze. Those three ways of being dysregulated all look very, very different. Fight, obviously, kids actually, like, being physically aggressive, maybe trying to push you away, biting, any of those types of behaviors. We might see flight, trying to escape from the activity, trying to escape from the room, And freeze is what it sounds like, which is like just that frozen state where um, they just go into survival, their brain basically goes into survival mode. And so we could think about, you know, what is their body doing? Um, Are they moving more when they're dysregulated or are they moving less when they're dysregulated? And then, of course, as SLPs, a big one to think about is how is this affecting their communication? You know, because we'll see kids who are dysregulated and a lot of the times we'll see they're either, you know, talking or communicating. I'll say for kids who might communicate in other ways, they might be communicating less, they might not be communicating at all, they might be, um, but you might see the opposite where you're actually seeing increased verbalizations because they're dysregulated, they're trying to cope you might see them, like, scripting um, or doing something where they're trying to regulate themselves. Um, in terms of language, we might see just, like, a lower level of complexity in their language when they're dysregulated, um, which could look opposite for, like, an analytic language processor. It might be that they would normally use longer sentences, and now they're using single words, or they're going back to using gestures or or pointing Versus like a Gestalt language processor, which I know you did a show on recently. Um, Gestalt language processor might go from a higher level stage to a lower level stage and go back to those scripts that they feel really comfortable with and are soothed by. So I think we have to think about like, what are all the, what is this child looking like and how do we know they're dysregulated? And a lot of the times, there are cues in the way that they're using their language or communicating that they're dysregulated.
1: It sounds like the more you know the child, too, the more you'll be able to pick up on what's abnormal behavior in this situation or today, so-and-so is acting this way and that way, and that is different from the norm. Um, Also, say it's an initial evaluation. What are some ways that you help figure out a kid that you don't know very well, like case history uh, questions that you ask parents and things like that.
0: Yeah. I mean, fortunately, you know, one of the benefits of being in a clinic is getting that parent interaction, but I always laugh at myself because I will think that I know a kid like perfectly and then I'll talk to the parent and then it's like, that puts me in my place. You know, (laughs) I think talking to the parent is just the most important thing. And and kids can be completely different in different environments. So that's something that I always like to consider, you know, a child might be very different at home when they're in their comfort, comfortable place with their people around them where they're safe and and it's predictable and they could be very different in therapy one-on-one and then they could be a completely different kid in a classroom. So When we are looking at a child's, you know, language and sensory needs, we're always trying to get information from as many people as possible because us creating, you know, we'll assess a child's sensory needs, but just because something works in the therapy session does not mean that's what the advice would be of something they need to do at home or in
1: school. It could be
0: very different.
1: That's very true. The different situations, it's going to be very different
0: wish it was an easier answer.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Is there a questionnaire or something that you could say you worked at a school that you could maybe give to the teacher and send home to the parent to learn that information? Does that exist? I don't even
0: know. There's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of like, you could probably just, you could just Google sensory preferences and things and come up with checklists. There's the sensory profile, which is an assessment that you can use if you're trained. which is something we'll we'll use here. Um, and then I have a assessment I created in my program, so that's what we will generally use here. Yeah,
1: nice, I know, I was about to say, I'm sure you have something, but very cool, awesome. Okay, so now we've painted the picture of what dysregulation can look like. So how do we help tilt the seesaw back um, to a balance? What are some strategies that you like to use? Yeah.
0: So one thing I will, this was like life-changing for me to realize, and you're a parent, so you get this too, but it's just funny how with me, I always go, I like dive into this research because I'm trying to help my clients. And then it ends up like helping my entire family (laughs) with all the children at home and all the dysregulation that happens. But something that I learned that was so eye-opening for me was about how kids can have different states of arousal, but essentially like different levels of energy that can range from low to high. And you think about a child with lower, a lower level of arousal, I like to say that's like Eeyore, right? Like more passive, wandering, slower, lower energy. And then you have got the high energy, which is like Tigger, and nonstop on the move, go, go, go. So we've got these different levels of arousal. And it's very, very normal for us to move through these throughout the day. So, like, we all wake up and we are in Eeyore. You know, we are, like, unless you're, like, uh, my fiancé, Chris. He, he, like, springs out of bed. He's, like, <laughs> Tigger from second one.
1: But That's it's, so like, funny.
0: most people, you wake up, you're groggy, you're not quite, like, Alert yet, you need eight cups of coffee if you're me before you start to get into that more optimal level of energy. Mm -hmm. And maybe something stressful happens in your day, and you you all of a sudden have end up in that high level of arousal because you get stressed out. But you're able to bring yourself back down. You're able to regulate yourself, bring yourself back down to that optimal level that you really want to be at for most of your day. So What happens is for most of us, you know, like I said, it's very normal for us to go through these kind of ups and downs throughout our day, depending on what's happening around us or how much sleep we got and all of that. But a lot of our kids will have a lot of trouble moving from state to state. So they might be a very high energy, high level of arousal kid almost all the time. Or the opposite. They might have that lower level of arousal. And the thing is, is that neither one of those states are going to be that optimal area that we really want them in, in order to be in that, like, engaged and communicative and alert place. So one step is thinking about, does this child have a lower level of arousal or a higher level of arousal? And that really helps us to tailor strategies specific to helping them. So should I dive into some of those? Yes, we're ready. <laughs> <laughs> so just, it, it obviously is a really complex topic. So I'm just giving you like the most concrete way of trying to start using these strategies that I can. Um, but it's really important, I will say, to consider what the child-specific sensory needs are because kids can have really major sensory differences and being exposed to sensory input that is dysregulating for them can like cause trauma. It can cause lots of issues. So we want to make sure that we feel really good about the kind of sensory input we are giving to our kids. So I think that kind of is covered in the assessment case history type of proportion. But once we know that, we can think about, in general, if we have a kid who has this high level of arousal, we want to give them calming strategies because that's going to lower them down. And then the opposite for kids who have a low level of arousal. For kids who have a low level of arousal, we want to give them alerting strategies so that we can bring them up. And in theory, this sounds easy, but when you actually try to do this, it's really hard because it's very counterintuitive. It's like, um, you know, when you go to like a sporting event and you don't even care, I don't know if you're a sports type of person, are you?
1: Yeah. I like, I like going to sports. I, I played sports growing up and, uh, I like to go to games more like just socially. I'm not, let me like who yeah but I, it's fun yeah, to I know. Know. it's yeah. like the experience right yeah so it's like,
0: i'll go i don't care who's playing but i'll go and then all of a sudden it's like the home team scores and everyone's on their feet and you're on your feet even though you don't even care about the outcome of the game it's like and and the opposite too like you might come into work one day and someone is like um just moaning and groaning, like, oh, it's Monday, and now all of a sudden you feel really bad because you're just around them moaning and groaning, and now you don't want to be at work either. But, you know, the idea is that energy is contagious. So when we go into a session with a kid who has that high level of energy, our reflexive kind of reaction is going to be to match that energy they're going to come in and be like, I want to play whatever. And we're going to go, okay, let's go. Come on. Let's go. Let's go play. Right. So, um, and then the same thing happens when we have kids with that lower energy who come in, they come in and we like take a big sigh of relief. Oh, this is going to be an easy session. We're just going to chill. What do you want to do today? Okay. Let's hang out. Right. Mm -hmm. But they really need you to almost do the opposite of how they are presenting to you. So it's having a tigger come into your session. They don't need another tigger in their presence because – because energy is contagious, you bringing that high level of energy is only going to increase their level of energy even more. And it's going to then increase yours and you're going to start to feel stressed and anxious and the child's going to feel more dysregulated. And it's like it gets to a point where it just escalates so quickly. So when you have a Tigger come into your session, you really want to try to be that calming source for the child. And like I said, it gets more complex than that because there are kids who need lots of sensory input. And for those kids, we still want to give them all of the input they need. We don't want to just like try to calm them before giving them everything they need. But the idea is that, you know, that's where you will see your kids get closer to that optimal learning zone is when, when you are giving them basically the opposite of what they are giving you.
1: That's amazing. That's news to me, because I definitely when a kid comes in, I've typically kind of matched what I felt was kind of their personality style. And you know, it is but at the same time, I didn't even think about it uh, in a sensory way of that should be a little more calm to just kind of make things a little calmer for them or, okay, I need to be the one to really pep things up and and get them focused. That's a great tip. That's really great. Yeah.
0: So I can kind of explain what that looks like a little bit more about calming Mm -hmm. versus alerting for people who want to try this out. But um, generally, what I think is so cool about sensory strategies is that I always say, like, it's not what you do, it's how you do it. Because I get so many therapists and, you know, we have a lot of therapists like in our courses and we do a lot of coaching and they're always therapists saying, What's a good activity? Like, what should I do? What toys should I use? And I always say the same thing, which is it's really not about what you do, it's how you do it. Because you could make almost any activity something calming or alerting. It could be um, putting a kid on the swing, but we could swing them back and forth in a straight line and we could sing really softly and we could swing them really slowly and rhythmically and that could be calming. And then we could put another kid on the swing, and we could sing really loud, and we could spin him in circles, and we could push him hard and unpredictable, and that's going to be alerting, you know? So it's same activity, but different strategies being used. So in general, when you're thinking about the sensory system, if you want to make an activity calming, you want to think about how can I make it slow, rhythmic, decrease the intensity of the input in general and things that are more familiar to us are also going to be more calming versus things that are less familiar will be more alerting like when you get off a plane at a in a city you've never been before and just like the the just the fact that you're somewhere new it like puts you in more of a heightened state of alertness
1: yeah that's true. Um, I never thought about that
0: yeah, so calming, slow, rhythmic, lower intensity versus alerting would be something that higher intensity, less predictable, faster. So it could be like bouncing on a yoga ball can be really alerting, versus um, like slowly rolling a yoga ball on their body
1: can be really calming. Okay. I see. Yeah. So really just how you use whatever tools or games or activities that you have, just doing it in a calming versus alerting way. Yeah. Very cool. What about um, any kind of tactile sensory strategies? Do you do those with kids?
0: Yeah. So
1: it's really interesting
0: with touch because touch hypersensitivity, so kids who are hypersensitive to touch that's one of the most common types of hypersensitivities that we see in autistic kids. But we also see a lot of like seekers, touch seekers who just love touch. So first, really knowing is is really helpful because if a child is really sensitive to touch, the main thing to know is that you always want them to be in control. You know, you would never, like, just shove Play-Doh into their hands. You would put it on the table and then allow them to explore it. But if you're thinking about – I always use tickles as an example, which is such a bad example because I know a lot of settings you would never tickle kids, but, like, that is something we do so often in the clinic setting. But if you're just thinking about, like, hand physical touch, if we are – um like tickling a child, that's going to be a lot more alerting versus giving them like deep pressure, slow squeezes is going to be something that's really calming. So if I have a kid come in who seems like they really need that calming and they're kind of running all over the place, I will try to add in some breaks where we do like slow, deep squeezes down their arms and we might sing a song really slowly and that We do a lot of singing here. (laughs) But that helps us kind of keep the slow rhythm of the squeezing if we're singing or we're counting or we're doing something at the same time. And then, of course, there's, like, so many different things we could give kids for um, sensory input when it comes to touch, like Play-Doh and slime and shaving cream and water. And the general rule for touch is that if it's a smoother texture and more familiar texture, it will be more calming versus like something that's like sticky, slimy, like shaving cream or slime is definitely more of an alerting type of activity.
1: So those kids that are already in more a more calming state and that you want to be more alert, using something alerting, does that often go well or, or do they sometimes dislike it or what What does that usually look like?
0: Depends on their sensory preferences, you know. I think that um, one thing we always have to know is what do kids just absolutely hate? Like what are those triggers for them? And we all have sensory triggers. I cannot wear wool, okay? That's mine, for example. Yeah. Me neither. Um, Yeah, and I promise this will make sense in a second. Let me tell you a story. Um, When I was filming for my course, I had this vision of wearing a navy sweater. I don't know why. I'm not a fashionista. Like, do not ever take my fashion advice. But it's like I just had it in my head. I needed a navy sweater, and that's what I wanted to get. And the only one I could find, I was looking for weeks and weeks, every store was, um, like, had wool in it, and it was, like, cashmere, or something, like, very itchy. And I was like, you know what? I'm only doing two days of filming. I'm just going to suck it up, and I'm going to wear the sweater. And guess how long I wore that sweater? Ten seconds. Like, I literally put it yeah. on. I was like, it's so dysregulating. I could never – I'm not going to be in my optimal learning zone to be able to record all these videos wearing this sweater. So, but I didn't bring a backup because that's how determined I was to wear it. Oh no. <laughs> so I put a long sleeve shirt on under to block the itchiness. And I filmed for the next two days in 80-degree weather in Orange County um these videos. So it's like I needed to put myself, torture myself to being hot, dying, no air conditioning, because I couldn't take the wool. Okay, so um My fiance, for example, it's like he loves loud things. He loves music, can't stand the sound of chewing. It's like that to him is his trigger. Like if I eat something, crunch something next to him, he is up and he is out into the next room. Okay, but the point is like we all have these triggers and it's like adults have this expectation of, oh, well, I'm just going to desensitize this child to whatever this trigger is. So maybe they're sensitive to light. Okay, well, I'm going to desensitize them to light by exposing them more and more, and and eventually they'll get used to it. But, like, I'm 35, and I still can't wear that sweater. Like, there would be right. nothing I could do. It's like I'm not going to go buy a sweater that's a little itchy and then one that's a little itchier and build my tolerance. It's just like I don't have it. In me.
1: Right. You don't need to wear the sweater more to, to get used to it. That sounds like torture. Exactly. Yeah.
0: But that is unfortunately like such a common practice in the field of sensory, is trying to increase kids' tolerances. And I'm not saying that we can't. Um, and in some cases, there are ways to do it that are gentle and easy and appropriate and and okay and not traumatic, but um. Unfortunately, a lot of times it just doesn't go that way. It just ends up being something that, like, is more traumatizing. And if we listen to the autistic community and people with sensory differences, like, they will tell you how traumatizing things were like that for them. It's kind of this idea that, like, our goal of sensory is not to desensitize kids to the things that bother them. Our goal is to figure out what they love and give them that and figure out what they don't like and keep them away from
1: that yeah I believe it I was just thinking about even myself my children different things that um have come up and I've discovered that I think I'm very sensitive to smells and that's not something I've ever really thought about with kids in different environments you know maybe you're you're pregnant again no (laughs) (laughs) that's true no I'm not but um That's true. Even non-pregnant. I, um, like I would, anytime I'm in an Uber, which isn't very often, they often have car air fresheners and I just about throw up. I've, then I've noticed anytime there's that kind of fake smell, it just makes me sick to my stomach. And I, I just can't imagine like someone just putting me in a room and like, turning up the smell putting filling it with those room fresheners mm-hmm. i would just throw up it's not going to make it better what i need is fresh air <laughs> i don't oh, yeah. need more air fresheners to just make a few air, air fresheners seem not so bad you know but that makes total sense and and like you said about um the more you learn about this just the more you know as a mom i i really can see in my own children too that some things that possibly look like uh, misbehaving or Like a behavior of some sort, but I I think the root of it often is, you know, with some with I think even most kids probably a sensory. I know my my daughter is I think she's more of a seeker for sure. She's always wanting uh, tickles, um, hugs, rough, you know, she's definitely more, um, already kind of alert, I guess. Uh, or maybe, well, I don't know. Actually, as you're talking, I'm like, oh, she's this and now she's this. So are there some that can switch back and forth? Cause I feel like sometimes she's very calm in certain situations. And then sometimes she is just bouncing off the wall, wanting, you know, all sorts of like alerting activities.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, kids can definitely yeah. shift that kind of energy throughout the day. What normally would what would be less likely to shift is like their what you're describing kind of with the smells, like their threshold, meaning like do they want a little or do they want a lot? And oh, okay. you might those thresholds might change a little bit depending on a lot of factors, like if you are really hungry, and then you get into an uber and then they have that smell it's probably going to make you even more nauseous because you're already (laughs) like hungry or tired or something um but like your threshold for smell like it will you'll always be sensitive to smell um versus like some so like your daughter may love big movement activities and that's something that you know doesn't change. But yeah, no, in our family, we have like so many different sensory profiles among us. And yeah, you bring up a good point of how much you think about your family because it really does affect your day-to-day life. I mean, I have my son who's six is an avoider and he gets bothered by things and he's very, very sensitive. And it affects our whole family, you know, because like For instance, there was like, there's this playground that we love here, which is right on the sand. I'm like, win win. Mom and dad get the beach, kids get the playground. This is like the ultimate Saturday for me. And one time we went there and it was windy. And he is so sensitive to like cold, so sensitive to wind. And he would, he was just sitting on my lap the whole time, so miserable. And then next weekend when we wanted to go back, guess what he said? I don't want to go back there. You know, and then it turned into like a snowball of like, well, I don't want to play at recess at school outside because it's windy. And um, I don't want to go outside. And it like escalated into these much more aversive responses he was having over time. But it's one of those things where it's like, had I not known that about his sensory system – I would have acted completely differently because that's when you get into the parenting of like, no, you're fine. And it it turns into like invalidating what they're feeling because you just don't, it doesn't make sense to you. It's not the way that you're experiencing the world, the way, the way that they are experiencing the world
1: is very different than the way you are. That's very true. Like I'm sure some people love those air fresheners. You know, I perceive it differently. You know, it's, it's just, you have to think about that. That's so true. Yeah, That makes me think of, um, advice that you may give to parents um that may like when they're out and about like no one situation I get into when I take my kids to a bathroom that has the air hand dryers or that's just they hate it it's loud it's terrifying um you know maybe just what kind of tips do you give to parents and whenever their child is in a situation where something's too much for them what what kind of tips
0: yeah, I mean, validating them is the number one thing that you can do as a parent or adult, you know, um, letting them know that it's OK and that they don't like it and, and that's OK or, or they love it and that's great, you know. But it's like not just trying to force them to work through it, like the dryer, for example, like, oh, OK, get a paper towel, wipe. Like, I'll let my kids wipe their hands on my sweatshirt, you know? It's like, I don't care if they're going to use a dryer or not. And a lot of kids hate those dryers. But what happens so often is we very, you know, intentionally or not invalidate our kids. So it's like, no, you're fine. That tag isn't bothering you or that sweater is not itchy or the sun's not too bright today. You're fine. Let's go. Instead of, yeah, the sun is out today. Let's go get a hat. Or let's go find some sunglasses or, yeah, let's cut that tag out, right? So it's like, it's one of those things where I think as a parent, it's the biggest struggle is like feeling like you're losing control, you know? Like you want to be the parent that is respected and your child is doing what you want to do, but it's like so much more about just – um trying to get on like an equal playing field of like, you don't always have to be right. You know, your goal is just to try to validate the child and help them solve that problem. So work through problem solving with
1: them. Mm-hmm. Right. And then the, and then that's a child that is even able to communicate, this tag bothers me, or this is too loud. And that that's incredible for them to be communicating that. And that absolutely, you know, should be respected. But um, what about those kids that can't communicate that or don't know how to really express what it is that they're that's bothering them? Um, I guess that's when we look for those signs that, that you talked about, you know, are they acting just very different? Um, is their state changing drastically just kind of being more aware? Or do you have any more tips for trying to figure out what's going on with with kids that can't explain it?
0: Yeah. I mean, that's a really hard position to be in, first of all, for parents. You know, it's like when your kid wants something and you can't figure it out, it's such a, like, devastating feeling, almost like a guilty feeling of, okay, I should know this. I'm their parent, you know. Um, But definitely continue or watching for those signs. Also, I just like think it's important for us to acknowledge how hard that is for parents because like we I think anyone who's a parent knows how horrible you feel when your kid wants something and you can't figure it out what you can't figure out what it is you know Um, but watching for those signs can really help us and the other thing is like once you can start to really get to know what a child's sensory kind of like likes and dislikes are that will help you so much because you can start to compare like oh, well, he didn't like um, this, So, th- and this other thing is really similar to that, so that could be the same thing that he's experiencing.
1: I feel like I could just, like, ask you random questions for hours, but to, <laughs> I'm trying to stick to my <laughs> to my script here a little bit. No, I appreciate um, it. Well, speaking of bathrooms, I just conversationally, um, <laughs> my daughter, if it has the air dryer and then if it has the automatic flush, Yes. Those are like, they're terrifying. She is so scared of it. And I've done like the, put the toilet paper over the sensor so it won't just scare her. Like So she can feel safe that it's not going to just flush, you know, when she's not expecting it. But yeah, um, poor thing. Now at, at kindergarten, they have automatic flushes. And I was just like, no. So she wears headphones to just block out the noise. And she's just as happy as can be. It's like that solved it for her. She's not scared of it. And then now it's not even an issue for her. I asked her many times. She's like, yeah, yeah. I go to the bathroom. I use my headphones. It's fine. That's awesome. Like, okay, that the great. School does you got that it. Letter. Yeah. Her teacher's really good about just helping the kids with whatever they need. So. And that's
0: like the it's exact scenario of like our goal isn't just to desensitize her to it. Although with stuff like that that we can't really control, a lot of the times that is what happens over time. But what we see – as people grow up and like i have an autistic friend she's in her 30s and she said that it's not that she couldn't just like take it all in throughout the day like she would go through her day taking in all kinds of sensory input that bothered her but then she would come home at the every, at the end of every day and meltdown and oh, she yeah. she is an slp and took my course and that was the first time in 30 plus years of her life, knowing about sensory and learning about it for herself. And she's like, I did not know that you could like do this. You could just make some changes throughout your day and come home and not have a meltdown. Like how great is this? Um, That's not
1: how you just have to be in the evening.
0: And that's just what happens for a lot of kids as they grow up, not having those needs validated or not they're not given solutions to those or the accommodations like you're talking about with the headphones. And then it just ends up that they come home and then they
1: just melt down because their body can't take anymore. And now they're at their safe space. It's so great to have to find those accommodations when you can and not just wait for them to get desensitized to it or something. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Well, You are such an inspiration. You've done so much research on sensory and you have courses and all these things. I was going to see if you could briefly let our listeners know a little bit about the resources that you have created, just because I think this is so helpful and people are going to look for more information after listening to this. Um, Could you just kind of quickly tell us a little bit about uh, your programs that you have? Yeah, of course. So we
0: have our Inside Out Sensory Certificate course for SLPs and SLPAs, which is online content. We do live calls and things like that as well. We have an awesome community, and it's just been really exciting. We have therapists from all over the world who have gone through this training, and just really cool to have a community of therapists who all kind of have this same mission and want to have the same impact and using neurodiversity affirming approaches. Um, And then something else that we have that's really helpful is called Autism Support Resources, which was essentially created to help train parents and professionals. And how it came about was I was working with this little girl this kindergartner and she had this massive team it was seriously like 20 therapists among all of her one-to-one aides and all the therapies she was in and her groups on the weekends and her swimming lessons and her extracurriculars and I was like man if I could just get everyone on the same page at once like I cannot have this the these training conversations with 20 people every single week. So I came up with, like, the biggest topics that I train other teams in, like how to build intrinsic motivation and um, sensory and how to validate kids and how to develop self-advocacy. Like, all the, the hot kind of topics I like to train therapists in. And then this is another – this was a project. I recorded it with an auti- another autistic SLP. And we go through, and it's essentially like a series of short video trainings that therapists can take and then send out to anyone on their, their students' teams that they are trying to train in something specific. So it's kind of like a grab-and-go resource. So yeah, that's called Autism Support Resources for Teams.
1: Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing that. Those are all really great resources to to dig a little deeper into this very vast topic
0: Yeah, and I should say I do a ton of free training. So we do Mm -hmm. free trainings for therapists probably like every other month. So you can always find those.
1: That's awesome. Yeah. What is one last kind of closing statement or pep talk, if you will, (laughs) you can leave our listeners with um, about sensory? This
0: is going to sound cheesy, but – I'm such a firm believer in, like, going with your gut and that therapy should feel good. And I think one of the things in my past when I did more of, like, structured behavioral therapy is that when it was, like, I was ignoring kids' needs. Like, I wasn't letting them stim. I was telling them quiet hands. Like, that's how I was trained. And it's, like, that never feels good. And I think, like, if you walk away from a therapy session going, that doesn't feel good to me. Something doesn't align here. It's probably not the right approach for you or the kid, you know. So I think that the beauty of taking into consideration a child's sensory needs is that you are validating those needs and you are really supporting them, and that's benefiting their emotional well-being. And if you can walk away from a therapy session going like that felt good, then you're on the right track.
1: I love that. That that really is good advice. Okay. Well, Jesse, this has been incredible. I really can't thank you enough for coming today and and talking with us about all this. Thank you for listening. We hope you learned something today. All of the references and resources throughout the episode are listed in the show notes and also listed on the pep talk podcast for SLP's website. If you want to learn more about Jesse and all things sensory, make sure to check out her Instagram at sensory.slp where she shares helpful resources and information Jesse, thank you so much again for joining me here today.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Thank you so much for listening to this episode on the Pep Talk podcast. Remember, you can use this podcast episode for a professional development hour to maintain your ASHA CCCs. You must earn your certificate of completion in order to get credit. This podcast course is also Tisha certified. I live in Texas, so that stands for the Texas Speech and Hearing Association. All the references and information mentioned in today's episode are listed in the show notes. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, or simply want to chat, please email me or find me on Instagram, Facebook, or go to pep talk podcast for SLPs.com. Thank you for joining in and for continuing your education with me.